And uh, I want to begin also with an observation that suffering has two qualities. Suffering is both very personal and suffering is also very powerful. The suffering that you and I endure, the pain that you and I endure, is both very, very powerful and very, very personal. Um, you and I have experienced this this winter here in Chicago. And um, you know what? And we're over it, okay? We're over it. Um, winter, we're just ready for winter to be done. Um, winter, uh, the cold that it's brought, the, the snow that it's brought, the ice that it's brought, has been very, very powerful. None of us have the power to stop it. But it's also very, very personal in that um, it affects us. It affects where we can find parking or not find parking. It affects how we feel when we walk outside. We're always affected by, 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 by this winter, and um, it's had a, a personal and powerful impact on our life. I've, uh, I've been thinking about ways that we process this incredible power, ways that we process the suffering of winter. And I've noticed there's a few different ways. This is not comprehensive by any means, but I think one temptation for us is to numb the suffering. To num- that's one way to process suffering as it comes into our life. We can, we can really we can numb the suffering. And I've had a few conversations uh, with, with some of you. We've just noticed and marveled how busy Trader Joe's gets when there's news of another snowstorm, another, another polar vortex. People like mob the wine aisle at Trader Joe's. <laughs> Uh, or Whole Foods, and it's like chocolate, yes, caramel, yes, you know, anything like French-related where, where there's like cream and sugar, you know, it's, it's just like, let's just go for comfort, because um, it really does feel good, and it really does like take the edge off of winter a little bit. Um, cheese, I forgot to mention cheese, that's a great numbing agent for suffering. Um, okay, so uh, second option, we can numb the suffering. Number two, we can fight the suffering. We can fight the suffering, and that is when we, we look really at the source of our suffering as our enemy, and, and, we, and, we, and we get revenge on it, or we complain against it, we fight it, we lash out against the source of our suffering. Um, and and um, there's some internet memes that picture this. It's really hard to fight snow, um, but one of the ways I think that, we, that, that we've seen this play out is with dibs. Uh, you guys familiar with dibs? Dibs is yeah. Dibs. Dib, first of all, don't dibs. Okay, don't. If you're doing it, stop it. Okay. Dibs is where you you dig your car out. It's it's such hard work. You know. It's and so and then you put your lawn chairs to save your spot. That's dibs. Now we've seen anger play out um, in, in our city with not only dibs but also angry notes that are put on the dibs chairs. In, uh, in North Center, they found some, a couple of notes on, on the dibs chairs, because, you know, dibs chairs can be easily removed. Um, and so what people have put on their dibs chairs is one, one person said this, to the punk coward who was too weak to put my chairs back, I didn't dig for you. Another person put on their chairs, I will break your windows if I see your car in this spot. Okay. Um, so we can fight the suffering. We can identify it as an enemy. We can find a talisman that represents our suffering and just lash out at it, back at our pain. So we can numb it. We can fight it. Thirdly, we can leverage it. We can incorporate the suffering into our identity and think of ourselves as extra special because of what we endured. So we can compare ourselves with others 
hey, you live in San Diego, you have no idea what it's like to, to experience what I've experienced in Chicago. I've seen some articles flying around about, is Chicago the toughest city in the world or whatever, you know, related to winter? Because it's hot in the summer and cold in the winter. And are we the toughest? Are we tougher than Milwaukee or St. Paul? And St. Paul's like, no, 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 we've suffered more than you. No, we're like, no, we've suffered more than you. And so it's like, what's the misery index? We have the highest misery index. We at least win something. Um, you know, so, so, so winter, it's purified me, it's made me more elite, made my blood thicker, I have bragging rights, and I can kind of compare with you and stack up as higher. So we can numb it, we can fight it, we can leverage it. Um, now, I've been getting to know some of you, okay, as your pastor, as your friend. And I don't know all of you, but I know a lot of you. And, and I know enough to know that your suffering is more profound than the winter, more profound than the snow and the ice, and, uh, and that you, you actually, your suffering is, is deeper than that. So many of you, for, either for yourself or for a loved one, you've been in a hospital before, or you've visited someone who's in hospice care, and, and you just see like the daily suffering that, that, that they go through, or you yourself have, have had to deal with something very intense and profound. Um, others of you have chronic pain. You've got chronic pain that, that's physical, no one can necessarily see it, but you deal with it every day. You wake up feeling it. Um, some of you have, you have chronic pain, and no one can see it. It's invisible. But it's just as real as if there was a, it, there was a gaping wound in, in your physical body. It's real. It's profound. You deal with it every day. You deal with something deep inside that's hard, that's laborious, that's really painful. No one can see it, but it's, but it's, but it's real. Um, Others of you, related to your family, you have a lot of pain related to your family, your parents, your grandparents, your siblings, your children. There is pain in your family, and it still affects you. You may not even live near them, but it's still impacting you. It's one of the major, thing, one of the major themes of your life, unresolved pain and suffering related to your family. And I think others of you, you are experiencing the pain and suffering simply of being alive, and maybe you even wonder if that is even worthy to be called suffering. Maybe you're like, you know what, it's, it's, it doesn't stack up to that person's suffering, so maybe it's not legitimate suffering. Maybe, it's, maybe I'm being too petty to even call it pain. But you, but you deal with things just from the pain of being alive. You deal with situations, you carry tensions, you solve problems that cost you. So um, you've got pain that's more profound than the winter. And you know what? We have still the temptations to run it through the grid of are we going to numb it you know are we going to are we going to 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 use numbing agents like, like alcohol like sugar um like social media even like pornography things that that feel like it takes the the edge off of the pain the edge off of the suffering and i'm not talking about prescribed medication it's totally different if you have a psychiatrist or a doctor prescribing medication to you um, that's not numbing the pain. That's processing it in a legitimate way. So that's, those are two separate things. But we're tempted to numb our pain in ways that really do disassociate us from the pain that, that, are, that is legitimately a part of our life. I think others of us, you know, we're tempted to, to fight it. We're tempted to find scapegoats for our suffering and lash out at those scapegoats and fight it. And this can even be as, as mundane. I was thinking about this. This can be as, as quiet and as... as uh, you know, mundane as simply complaining. It's like if you have a boss 
that, that really you feel like your boss is your enemy, but you don't have the power to like do anything about it, you kind of quietly mumble and complain. It's one little way of fighting, but it can go all the way up to angry outbursts. So how are you fighting your pain? How are we fighting our pain and our suffering? It could be raging, it could be revenge. Some of us are tempted to leverage our pain. We really are tempted to incorporate our suffering and pain into our identity and, and, and absorb it and coddle it and, and, and in some ways wear it like a badge of honor. I'm special. I'm unique. No one else knows the pain I'm going through. Very few people could handle the pain I'm going through. And, and I'm more special as a result because I've gone through it. And most people haven't. I'm special. I have this badge of honor. I'm unique. I'm profound. We leverage our pain. We like to think of ourselves as more special as a result. It's coping mechanisms. These are coping mechanisms for, for pain and suffering. Now, if you're a spiritual person, if you believe in God, um, you might even be tempted to find spiritual versions of all three of these. Spiritual versions of numbing, spiritual versions of fighting our pain, being triumphalistic over it, spiritualized versions of, of leveraging the pain, incorporating it into ourselves to make ourselves more special. That is a temptation. But when we study the, the experiences and, and the letters of people who have walked with God through their suffering, we see something totally different than those three options. When we open up Holy Scripture and we see, read even the book of Philippians, how did Paul process his suffering? We see that, that none of these coping mechanisms are, 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 are being engaged. There's something deeper and more profound and more sustaining going on than numbing, fighting, or leveraging. Um, this, this season in Lent, we're, we're, uh, as I mentioned before at the beginning of the service, we're, we're looking at a theme called hollowed out and filled. Hollowed out and filled. And this is really, we're talking about how the self is remade and renewed as we join in union with Christ. So there's this little card in your bulletin. Um, and and it's, it, Joe Weber drew this. Um, and um, it really, it's kind of a picture of a log that's been taken it's been hollowed out, carved out, and it's become a chalice, and it's ready to receive, it's ready to receive the wine. It's ready to receive the presence of Christ. Um, the implication of this is that, is that God has a purpose for your suffering. That God actually incorporates your suffering into his larger story of renewing all things. And in doing so, he wants to unite your pain and your suffering with joy and with hope. He wants joy and suffering to be mingled together in ways that are profoundly countercultural for the Western world. Because we think of them as separate things. If I'm going to have joy, I'm not suffering. And if I'm suffering, there's no joy. In the, New, in, in, the, in the New Testament, we find that joy and suffering are mingled together through the person of Jesus. They're mingled together. That as, as suffering goes deep, there's joy that's deeper still. As suffering goes deep, there's hope that's deeper still. As suffering goes deep and as pain, it, pain runs deep in our life, the presence of Christ runs deeper still. They're mingled together. And actually, suffering becomes a tool in the hand of God to remake us. Um, it, it becomes uh, a passageway through which we are made new. So here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to be honest about your suffering and, and look with me in Philippians as a suffering person. And I say that I'm with you because I'm, I'm alive, I'm a human, I have experienced pain and suffering. Let's read this together as people who suffer.
If you haven't already, I invite you to turn to Philippians 1. We're going to look at verses 12 through 30. Now this letter starts, or this, this passage for today starts in an interesting way. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has really happened to me... Now stop there. I, that's a great way, actually, of describing the state of suffering. What has happened to me? What has happened to me? And the, and the way this is phrased is the, the, the to me is emphasized. There's actually an extra uh, preposition thrown in there that it almost can read as against me, as a profound, profoundly shaping event or profoundly shaping series of events that has landed on my plate ready to be processed and metabolized. Now, what was Paul referring to when he said, what has happened to me? Well, he, he gives hints of what has happened to me in, in this text. First of all, we see that um, he's had an unjust imprisonment. In the end of verse 13, he mentions my imprisonment. Um, now, what do we know about, about, about imprisonment? Paul, Paul goes to, to Rome to start a new church um, and, and to, to spread the gospel. And what happens is um, he is put in jail because he is uh, seen as a revolutionary, as a, as a political rabble-rouser. And revolutionaries and political rabble-rousers were um, n- the enemy number one in Rome. Enemy number one. Because the emperor in Rome felt like, hey, you know what? If you're going to be subversive, if you're going to upset the status quo, the status quo is going to mess with you. The status quo is going to upset you. And so the cross was the original symbol of the politics of fear. Because the cross was reserved for people who were upsetting the status quo. Rome wanted to make an example out of people who would, who would disrupt the order of Rome. There was this idea that peace and tranquility, um, a lack of conflict, a lack of drama, a bottom or a top-down rule would make things great, make things amazing. And so um, they would reserve imprisonment to some degree and the cross for revolutionaries. Now, Paul was upsetting the status quo, and... Um, he was put in prison for, for simply spreading the message of the gospel. And that was, um, by, by any um, uh, standard of, 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 um, of human rights, a, an unjust imprisonment. And his imprisonment was not like the prisons that you and I would experience, even in the United States, where prison reform is desperately needed. There were rats, okay? There were, um, you were poorly fed. Um, human waste was not... Uh, dealt with in a way that was proper. And so your life was in danger simply by being in jail. You were not well taken care of. You were the scum of the earth. You were presumed guilty. Uh, you were not presumed innocent. And so prison conditions were, were uh, incredibly dark and grim. And Paul was put in prison for doing the right thing. Okay? That was one of the things that had happened to him. But that wasn't the only thing. Secondly, we see that he's, he's the victim of uh, vindictive taunting. Look in verse uh, uh, 17 with me. Um, Some people are proclaiming Christ, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Okay, so this is insult to injury. Not only am I a victim of unjust, uh, uh, unjust treatment, unjust imprisonment, but there are people out there that want to psychologically taunt me for being in prison, and they're using the message of the gospel to do it. And so... There's insult to injury. Not only is he in prison, not only is he undergoing harsh conditions, he's also the victim of, uh, of, of human-to-human attack. Thirdly, um, there is the likely threat of death. 
the likely threat of death. Um, Paul alludes to this from, uh, from, from the side by saying this in verses uh, 20 and 21. Um, he says this, Christ, this is in the middle of verse 20, Christ will be honored in my body by life or by death. For to me, for to, me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he's got this option in front of him. I might live, I might die. If you were sent to prison as a revolutionary, those are your options. I might live, I might die. And as it turns out, Paul only had a few years left. By the, this was 61 AD when he, wrote, uh, when he wrote the book of Philippians. He was executed, he was beheaded in the mid-60s. So it wasn't, he knew what was coming, okay? He knew, he knew, he was a Roman citizen, he was an educated guy. If you're in a Roman prison and you're in Rome and you're revolutionary, your odds are not good. So the ambiguity of death, of a death sentence, is hanging in the air, all right? So he's in prison unjustly, he's taunted, and he might be killed. That is what has happened to Paul. And yet we see a response from Paul to this profound, powerful, personal experience of suffering that transcends numbing it, that transcends fighting it, that transcends leveraging it. We see something that transcends all of those. His response is unique. It's richer and it's deeper. Here's a clue to his response. Verse 18, the end of verse 18, he says this, I rejoice, and yes, I will rejoice. I rejoice, and yes, I will rejoice. This is the clue to his response. How could Paul respond with rejoicing to all of that? Is this simply spiritualized uh, numbing? Is he simply saying Jesus is making it all go away? No, he's being honest about his suffering. He's saying, I will rejoice. In the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of this pain, there's something else that is being woven into my experience of suffering, and it is joy. Let me ask you this. When do you see suffering people rejoice? Think about this. Have you ever talked with someone, experienced friendship with someone, they're suffering, but they're also full of joy? There's usually a relationship involved. If you talk to a parent, so they've done a lot of studies and they've basically shown that there's an inverse relationship between having children and how happy you are. Okay, so the happiness quotient is up here. You have kids, it goes down. The more kids you have, it goes down. And you know what? It's true, okay? <laughs> now, let me, say, let me tell you this. This is undeniable. Um, your, your, your life is not as fun. You don't go to as many concerts. You don't get to eat hot food or drink hot drinks for a while. Um, uh, okay, you go through all kinds of uh, inconveniences. Um, there, there's all kinds of ways why having children, your, your suffering goes up and your happiness goes down. But ask any parent, would you go back and have it any other way? And they would say, yeah, totally. No, no. They would say, they would say absolutely not. They would say, absolutely not. I so love my sons and daughters. I so, I am, I, it's actually a privilege to get to give of my life to them. It's a, it's a privilege to, to stay home from a concert or to, to eat cold eggs so that, my, so that my children can thrive. It really is. It's a privilege to take aside some of the money I would put into a yacht <laughs> and put it towards college savings. It really is a privilege to lay down my life because you know what? Suffering isn't just for numbing. Suffering isn't just 
for leveraging. Suffering just isn't for fighting. You know what suffering can be? It can be a gift of love that you give someone that you love. Suffering can be a gift of love. And it can be just as powerful and just as personal. In fact, it can be the most powerful personal gift you ever give someone that you love. And parents know this. People who are running the marathon and they're, and they're doing it for the child they sponsor know this. I mean, the pain of me running a marathon or me raising money, that's nothing. That's nothing. It's a gift. I get to show somebody how much I love them from my gift of suffering. It's a privilege to go through all the trouble to show you how intense my suffering is for you. There's a few people in history who have done this. And... Um, and what's interesting is that their gift of suffering invites other gifts of suffering. I'll tell you about three very quickly. Martin Luther King, he loved his people so much that he gave them the gift of his own suffering. He would walk through the streets of Chicago and have a brick, land, have a, a, a brick thrown at his head because he, he loved the people that, that were the victims of housing discrimination on the west side. I'll tell you someone else who did it, Gandhi. He, he fasted, he went, on, um, uh, he went on marches, he suffered greatly for the people of India because he cared so much about them, and he gave the people of India his gift of suffering for them. I'll tell you a third person who did it, Mother Teresa. She gave the untouchables of India the gift of suffering, the, the gift of her suffering. It was a gift. Um, it was not, uh, she, was, she was not trying to be a martyr, she was operating in love. You know what happened? As each of these three people gave profoundly a gift of suffering, do you know what happened? Other people joined them. Not out of duty, not out of martyrdom, not to become extra special, but for the opportunity to give the same gift of love. And so it was a privilege for people to be put in jail with Martin Luther King. It was a privilege with people to fast with Gandhi. It was a privilege for people to join Mother Teresa and love the people whose whose bodies were being eaten out by maggots. It was a privilege for them because they loved Mother Teresa in response. See, sacrificial gifts call out sacrificial gifts, don't they? They call out to something deep within us. You loved me so much that you would suffer for me. I love you so much, I will suffer with you. I will suffer for you. Not because I'm trying to earn your love, but because I'm overflowing with the love that you have put inside of me. Now listen, Paul says in verse 13, my imprisonment is for Christ. My imprisonment is for Christ. One commentator, Peter O'Brien, unpacks this phrase and he, he translates it this way. My imprisonment is because of my union with Christ. Christ did something for me which brought me to Rome. It, it compelled me to go to Rome. He showed me the love of the Father as he bled on the cross, as he lived my human life, as he, walked, uh, as, he, as he walked this earth, as he suffered and died, as he was resurrected for my sake, ascended for my sake. He gave me the gift of his own suffering. God gave me the gift, me, Paul, the gift of his own suffering. And he actually invited me to receive that love so deeply that any suffering that I endure, whether it be mundane or whether it be profound, is an offering of love. It is a gift to Jesus. It is a profound gift of love to Jesus. 
My imprisonment is for Christ. He would say later um, in verse 20, It's my eager and expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Christ will be honored in my suffering body. Whether, um, whether I live or whether I die, Christ will receive a great gift of love from me, from my body. That is actually a profound, uh, profoundly dignifying thing that the Lord would receive everything that we are and everything that we have, including, but not limited to, our suffering. He would receive it. And Peter O'Brien um, goes on to say this. Um, the evidence um, that your courage is a divine token of salvation lies in the fact that God has graciously bestowed on you, along with the faith in Christ, the privilege of suffering for him. All suffering can be gifted to Christ. It can be for Christ. Your whole life can be a bonding agent to Jesus. That's why Paul rejoices, is because the Lord receives his suffering, sanctifies it, and actually incorporates it into his larger story of redemption. What's interesting is at the end of this passage, it says this, verse 29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should also not, uh, not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And I want you to know something. You might read that and go, you know what, I'm not a missionary. I'm not a pastor. I'm not planting a church in Rome. I'm not in prison. My suffering's actually pretty mundane. Maybe it's not extra special. Um, I'm not engaged in the same conflict. Let's change that word conflict to story. You are engaged. God is calling you to be engaged in the same story of redemption that Paul was engaged in. Your life and your suffering, whether it be the simple daily mundane aspects of your suffering or whether it be profound suffering, is woven into the same story that God started when he said, let there be light. The same story that he, um, that he entered into when he was born of the Virgin Mary. The same story that he redeemed when he bled and died on the cross to show you the depths of his love. The same story that birthed the church that, uh, where the, when the Holy Spirit was sent to begin the church in Acts. The same story that, that spread Christians out because of persecution all over Asia Minor. The same story that got Paul in prison. The same story is your story. God is calling you to not only receive his love, but be engaged in his story of love. Whether your suffering is daily and mundane or whether it is profound, God is actually asking for you to give your suffering back up to him as a gift. As a gift. Um, I want to to invite you to take take out these cards and actually flip it to the back. And... um, And I want you to consider, how do you suffer? And and, and if you're feeling courageous, maybe even write down one or two ways that you are experiencing pain right now in your life. Maybe it's daily, maybe it's profound. Maybe as Shakespeare says, it takes you um, to the realms of doom for the sake of love. Or maybe you simply have a headache in the morning when you wake up. Whatever it might be, what what are ways that you are suffering? Secondly, how are you dealing with it? Are you numbing it? Are you fighting it? 
Are you leveraging it? How are you tempted to, to deal with your suffering? God is calling you to, to offer up your suffering to Jesus as a gift of love, as a response of faith that Jesus gave you everything, that he, ble- that he was God bleeding on the cross for you. His gift of love was for you. Now he's, resp- he's inviting you to engage with him, give you, uh, and for us to give us our suffering as a gift of love back to him. That is where rejoicing happens. That's where God takes our suffering and begins to shape us. It may not feel profound. It may not feel rich and deep when you give up your suffering to Jesus, when you say, this inconvenience is for you. This frustration on my way to work is for you. This, the way I deal patiently with my boss is for you. The way I deal with my unemployment is for you. It may not feel profound. It may not feel intense. In fact, it probably won't. Over time, this is the way, this is a discipline that opens up God to change us through our suffering, to weave in joy in our suffering, to weave in hope in our suffering. And there will be an end to that story. There will be an end. There will be a profound end. If you are in Christ, one day you will meet him face to face and he will show you, don't you see what I was doing? Don't you see all the while, whether your suffering was profound or mundane, I was with you. I was completing you. I was following out all that didn't belong. And I was putting in the very life of Christ. I was renewing the image of God within you. You will see Christ face to face if you are in Christ. And you will see that he was doing it all the, all the, all the while. Even when he felt far away. Even when he felt completely distant. He was drawing you into himself and he was completing you. And on the final day when you are resurrected by the power of God, you will know that he was with you the whole time. He gave you his gift of suffering. And he invites you to experience that gift by offering up your suffering in response. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.